Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. My guest on this episode is Steve Clapham, the founder of Behind the Balance Sheet and the host of the excellent podcast and the writer of the Substack of the same name. Now, Steve is a veteran analyst who's worked on both the buy and the sell side, and he's used forensic accounting to uncover frauds as well as great companies, which are, for whatever reason, sorely undervalued by the market. Now, for reasons I can't quite put my finger on, it just felt like the perfect time to invite someone like Steve onto the podcast for a chat, and I was delighted when he was available and willing to come on and talk to me. This is the first of what I hope will be an ongoing conversation as things continue to unfold from here. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Steve Clapham. Steve, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to get the chance to talk to you. It's been quite a while since we've had a chat. Yeah, well, I'm really looking. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's it, the pleasure is all mine. I promise you. Let's kick off with with a bit of your background because there will be people that that aren't familiar with your work. So let's talk about your personal background because I think it's important to understand where you come from to get a sense of why you're doing what you're doing and, and how you're going about it. Glasgow. The <laughs> one word answer. It always no, works. So seriously, uh, so I, you know, as you know, Grant, I my background is that I started on the south side. I was on the south side. I was a sector analyst at various investment banks for fifteen odd years. Then one of my clients um, decided that I was talking less rubbish than most of the south side analysts he, t- he talked to, and he stupidly decided to give me a job and. As soon as I got on the buy side, I thought, oh, man, I'm an idiot because I should have come long, long ago. And I really, I, the, you should never have regrets in life and you should never have worries about your career. But Stuart Newton, who founded Newton Investment Management, had offered me a job some years previously. And um, I got paid more in the south side, so I didn't move. And yeah. that was, you know, but you know, it is what it is. And I went on the buy side. And I thought, oh, man, this is just so much more fun because I can spend my time with my nose and balance sheets rather than talking to clients on the phone, making sure I'd done my 30 calls that week. And, you know, I got a bit fed up at this outside. I remember having a massive argument with my boss because I cut the fidelity analyst off my list. And he said, you can't do that. It's fidelity. And I said, look, the guy has cancelled the sixth meeting, his his predecessor voted me number three. For He hasn't spoken to me. He Maybe he has read my research, whatever it is. He doesn't want to talk to me. And therefore, if he doesn't want to talk to me, he's not going to pay me. And therefore, I'm not going to send him my work. Right. And, uh, you know, it was the, the sell side is called the sell side for a reason, because it involves selling. And I found that I was actually better at the analysis than at the sales so being on the buy side was was far, far more enjoyable. Unfortunately, I got came to the conclusion much too late in life. And the last role I had was at a small hedge fund. We struggled a bit 
for various reasons. None of them, of course, anything to do with me. I was brilliant, but my colleagues were <laughs> not quite as brilliant. Um, we were actually, I was, I was very unlucky because I arrived um, on the 2nd of January 2016 and the stock market, the first day of January in 2016, stock market collapsed. And we were very long and very wrong. And within a few weeks, we were down 5%. And we never really recovered from that. Anyway, so I just thought, look, you know what? I better get another job because we're deciding to close this business. And um, I like the job. And I applied for lots of jobs, 47 jobs. How many interviews did I get, Grant? Oh, you know the story, perhaps. But the, the, I got zero interviews and I came to the conclusion that I was too old because nobody wanted to employ a 50-something analyst right. in London. Which and is foolish, the, the, frankly, but still. Well, you know, I mean, it, it is what it is, right? So average hedge fund manager is 42 years old. And do you want somebody older than you looking over your shoulder saying, are you sure you want to do that? Well, in theory, you should want that, right? right. But in practice... You want autonomy. So anyway, look, it is what it is. And I, somebody had the bright idea, why don't you set up a training business? So I set up Behind the Balance Sheet as a training business in 2018. And I'll tell you what, I do miss investing money and being in the cut and thrust of the stock market. I can't deny that, that but I've got a lot less stressful life. Right. Because I don't, you know, I don't get up in the morning worrying what the stock market's done or worrying what my position looks like. I get up in the morning and think, oh, you know what? I'm just going to walk to work. Once I've finished my breakfast and got the kids off to school, I'm going to stroll around to the office and um, I might pick up something to eat on the way. And I'll just, um, you know, I'm going to have a relaxing day today. And, you know, I walk around and if it's a nice sunny day, I walk along the canal. And I, by the time I get to office, I, I'm feeling very chilled. And that there is. There's a, a huge value in that. You know, you tend to get obsessed with being in the market, being in the, you know, working for a big fund and and, and trying to succeed in life. And, you know, that that's, there's more to life than that. Well, what's interesting, and, and the clue is in the, the title um, behind the balance sheet, and we'll come to that shortly. But, it, you know, it's ironic that that comment about nobody wanting a 55-year-old analyst, I, I find that, so fascinating because if you look at every other part of the working landscape you'll see over the last 10 years that the you know the 54 plus uh, age bracket are the ones who have mostly been going back to work you know the, the employment for 54 plus has been strong because um, I remember reading an interview with I think it was the Wendy's or one of the fast food CEOs saying that they wanted a 55 year old plus gray haired person on every shift because their work ethic was great and the young kids felt like they were working for their grandparents. And so they were much more respectful and worked harder because their grandparents were around them. You know, we come to, you come to finance and they're putting guys like you and me out to pasture. But, you know, someone like you with the experience you have and the particular skills you have, I'm making you sound like Liam Neeson now, this particular set of skills that you have, I would argue have never been more valuable than the last few years, even though people probably haven't realized that. But going into these next few years with what I think many of us expect to happen, having the skill set that you have is going to be incredibly valuable. So let's talk about behind the balance sheet, why that title and the way you do what you do, because I think, as I said, it, it's incredibly valuable. 
Well, Behind the Balance Sheet was the name of a publication we used to have, and the publication no longer exists. So I called up the guy that used to publish it and said, do you mind if I use that? He said, no, don't, don't be that. Of course you can. And so I think, you know, it, it's just, uh, I think it's a useful title because, well, there are two aspects to this. The first is people don't read their camps anymore. Right. right. So in the old days, that was all you had. Right? You didn't have all the, you know, you didn't have Twitter. You didn't have all the instantaneous stuff. So you, you, if you wanted to find out about the company, you had to read a set of accounts. So, you know, that was like, if you were a financial analyst, that was like the core skill. Today, people don't read the accounts. I mean, in my, so I do a forensic accounting course right. for institutional analysts and portfolio managers, usually quite senior people. And in it, I talk about this and um, it's actually David Einhorn said to me, he said, the problem with today's market is that people don't look at the numbers. And this was a conversation I had with them in 20, I mean, 2017, I think, I mean, five mm -hmm. years ago. And there's been various studies, I show various studies in the in the course, one of them by one of the big four accounting firms, which had only two out of three analysts opening the 10K or the, the reporting accounts, which is like, you know. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, the balance sheet, I think, is the most important financial statement. And people do not look at it. They just don't look at it. And I've, I've just come from a, a course this morning, um, one of my good clients, and I train um, data scientists at this organization in how to understand the financial statements. So they're, they, they're not, they don't have a financial bent, but they there is a quants hedge fund and they need to understand what the numbers mean. And so I go through all the, you know, how the three financial statements fit together, three principal statements, the balance sheet, the PL, and the cash flow. And it's astonishing. We were talking before we came on about the CFA, but I have trained various people that have got the CFA qualification and they still don't understand this. Right. And the balance sheet is the thing that sits between the P&L and the cash flow. So, you know, the P&L, I can guarantee you that for 499 companies at the S&P 500, or maybe 498, the, the, the P&L is exaggerated. And the cash flow tells you what really happened, what's really happening. And the balance sheet is where you understand how the, how the P&L is exaggerating the earnings. Right. So behind the balance sheet is you know, where you should start. And in this course I did this morning, I went through my process and my process, if you gave me a new company to look at now, I would start with the balance sheet. This idea of behind the balance sheet, it's fascinating to me because, you know, I think um, what you say is absolutely correct in terms of how people have analyzed stocks, i.e. very loosely, because they haven't really had to, because everything's been going up. You know, markets have all been on this kind of rising tide. And you could be a successful analyst without being a good analyst. You just had to pick stocks and, you know, you can come up with some fluff. And the additions since the beginnings of your career of things like social media, let's face it, are just ways the, the corporate communications guys would tell you that this is a way for us to get our story out to the public. When you and I know the truth, it's a way to create narrative. And if you can create the right narrative, you can actively discourage people from even bothering to look at 
balance sheets, right? And income statements and, and the like. So let's talk about that process. Let's talk about the importance of the balance sheet because there are people listening to this and I sincerely hope that there will be many of them who are serious investors who will contact you to ask you about taking this course of yours because I think it's it's going to be incredibly important in the years to come as the tide goes out and as Warren Buffett says, we get to see who's swimming naked. To be able to get ahead of that and analyze the companies you own and look at the numbers and really get a true sense of them is going to be important. So let's talk about the process, obviously, without going to the whole thing, because we'd be here for a long time if we do that. But let's talk about your process and give people a sense of how you do what you do. The, the funny thing is, you know, I started in 2018, 2019, I started to try and promote what I was doing, because obviously, you know, I need to, to have clients and I've got institutional clients that I do in-person courses or Zoom courses with. And then I've got my online training school. So I, you know, when I first went on Real Vision, I was trying to tell people, you know, here I am and 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 I exist. And then, you know, I kept getting asked these questions, well, does this matter? And I had to say, well, not really right now. It doesn't matter until it matters. Yeah. And I, I, I've had this sort of ongoing struggle to try and persuade people. So I'll, get, I'll give you an example. I'll, go, I'll come back to the process just to give you an example sure. of why it's important now and why it hasn't been important. Netflix. So Netflix's content accounting, I've written, I don't know, maybe three articles about. I feature it in my forensic accounting course. I've had significant arguments with one of Netflix's largest shareholders about it. And it's my contention that Netflix's content accounting is extremely aggressive. They're carrying a 30 plus billion dollar asset on their balance sheet, which I mean, maybe, maybe it is worth $30 billion. I, I don't know, but certainly it's not the best way of thinking about what Netflix makes because yep. Netflix is reporting or has been reporting a margin in the mid twenties or projecting and it's a projecting a margin in the mid twenties. But if you take Netflix's cash spend on its content, its margin would only be 5% or 7%. I mean, so I'm saying, well, there's quite a big difference between those two numbers. And do you really understand what the value of the assets are? Because in the end, what you spend in cash is what the amortization will be. Yep. Those two things will converge over time. I don't know how long it will take, but you know, as long as as long as they're as long as they're spending contents growing, the amortization will lag. But once it levels out, the amortization and so, you know, I've I've got no idea what Netflix's long run margin will be. I mean, I I imagine Reed Hastings doesn't know. Right. No, I mean, no, you know, it's an unknowable number because it depends on all sorts of all, all sorts of variables that we don't know the answer to. How many new competitors, how much people will be prepared to pay for the product. It's a new company, you know, it's a relatively young company. So it's it's very hard to predict with any with any degree of comfort or certainty. But what we do know is that it cannot be 25% unless you make some you know, really seriously optimistic assumptions. And what I was saying for the past two years is, look, you should be aware of this, but don't listen, 
don't listen to me. <laughs> you know, but you need to you need to you need to think about this. And of course, you know, we saw what happened. The valuation of Netflix went from three hundred to one hundred, and it, yeah. it's bounced a bit. But the, this debate still hasn't really caught hold. And what we will see over the next three to five years, and it will start seriously in 2023 as numbers start to go down, not up, people are going to ask themselves, well, hang on a second. What is the quality of the earnings? And, you know, almost all the people that are listening to this won't have lived through very many bear markets. And the bear markets we've had in the last 20 years have been very short and sharp. You know, we haven't had a cyclical decline for 20 years. And before that, we hadn't had one for 10. So what we're going to see is a very, very different set of financial reporting where, you know, people are going to be looking at the trends in a, in, in a completely different line. And, you know, I had a call this week with a head of research at one of the big, one of the big banks. And I said to him, so do the, do the analysts know where the minus sign is on the calculator? <laughs> and, and he was kind of, he was kind of laughing, but also kind of putting his head in his hands because you look at the consensus numbers, the S&P 500. I mean, do you, do you believe them? I mean, they've started to come off a bit, but I mean, do you believe that those are any, I mean, anywhere near realistic? Well, uh, I mean, it's so interesting you bring that up because that's kind of the missing component for me. When I look at EPS forecasts from the big bulge banks, they are still forecasting, you know, double digit EPS increases this year, despite the background, right? When you, and you look around the background, you look at what's going on, and one can only assume that that is purely down to the idea that the Fed will pivot, they will come in, and we're back to how we were, they'll lower rates again, and everything will go up. That, that's At this point, that's the only real thing that can underpin an idea like that. Whereas what you do in looking at the numbers, you get to these periods in time where people are forced to do that. And until this last kind of short era, that's been a skill that has not been out of fashion, but it feels to me like it's been kind of drummed out of people through lack of necessity. You haven't had to really understand the numbers to be a successful analyst. You pick no. companies that people like, like Netflix is such, I'm so glad you bought Netflix up. It's such a perfect example. I've written about Netflix a couple of times and along the same lines as you, you, you pick a company that's popular and at the beginning had little competition and is on everybody's lips. And because everybody's talking about it, it's a very easy story to sell. And the first sign of reality setting in, we see what happens. So, you know, so let, let's stick with Netflix and talk about the changing attitude towards it since this happened. Have you seen any change yet in people's attitude or are they still in that, well, it's going to bounce back phase? Well, the people I speak to tend to be sympathetic to my stance in that you need to understand the numbers because my client base naturally are people that say, oh, well, it'd be quite useful to understand what's going on in the companies and, and what the numbers actually mean. The people that, well, you laugh. I can't help myself. But I had an exchange on Twitter with this guy. So he bet. There was a, somebody I, I vaguely know on Twitter who'd recommended this retail stock. 
And it was, uh, I can't remember the name of it. It was something that I'd never heard of before. It was bombed out, crappy retail stock. And this is late 2020. And he said, you should buy Zoom. And for some reason, I was bored and I intervened in the conversation and I said, I think you might want to look at the retail stock. I've never heard of it, but it looks cheap. And Zoom certainly isn't cheap. Anyway, we started having this debate. It wasn't, there was no animosity. It was a genuine discovery of the truth. Well, that's an Unfortunately, this guy, (laughs) better remain nameless, he went on to be given money by Chamath. You remember Chamath was was spreading money around? And... I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how that ended up, but I would bet a large amount of money that it didn't end up well. <laughs> it didn't end up making money. By the time Zoom was one hundred and seventy billion dollar market cap, and I said to the guy, I said, "Zoom's a case study in my valuation course. Maybe you would like to do that." And I was going to offer him this for free as a, an act of charity and goodwill towards my American cousins. And he didn't want to do my valuation course. I said, oh, really? What, why is that? He said, I, I'm not big on valuation. He said, I just want to buy companies that will be bigger in five years' time. Oh, man. So, I mean, this is like, I don't know, call it September 2020. You know, I, I can't remember whether we're still in lockdown or, but, you know, it was peak Zoom. Yeah. And and it was 170 billion market cap. I remember that number. I mean, I might have got, I might be out by 10% or something, but it was around about that. Very, very close to the peak. And, uh, you know, I, I come across these people all the time and I just really can't have a conversation with them because I, I just, you know, I just can't, this doesn't compute to me. I don't care whether you're a value investor or you're a growth investor. Valuation, not that I believe there are, those two things are different. Valuation matters. What you pay for something makes difference. And it can't be otherwise. Yeah, look, that, I, I agree. That idea that what you pay for something is is arguably more important than what you sell it for, right? I mean, because if you buy at the right price, it, in many t- in cases, takes care of the exit for you. But let's talk about Zoom then. As a case study, let's have a bare bones run through Zoom and, and talk about the kind of information you look at, the kind of things you point out, and the kind of way you analyze these case studies so people can get a sense of what it is you do. Well, I mean, I didn't do any work at all on Zoom. All I did was I said, okay, Zoom is competing with Microsoft and Google and possibly even Facebook and Amazon down the road. But let's just say, you know, you can do Google Meets, Microsoft Teams, or Zoom. Zoom is a better product. We are using Zoom as we speak. Yep. I pay for Zoom. I pay $120 a year. I don't remember exactly. But I remember when I signed up, I got a discount. And when I renewed, I got a discount. This is where my research ended. We did actually look at trying to understand. No, don't laugh. Um, the, the best ideas are always the most simple ones. We I love don't... it because I agree 100%. What did I do for Zoom? I looked at Zoom, $170 billion market cap, and I said, 
how much has this company spent in its lifetime on capital expenditure and R&D? Because after all, it's competing with two of the largest, most successful tech companies in the world. So what number do you think that that came to? In its entire its entire history. I have no idea. Go on, go on, make a guess. It, it was valued at 170 billion. Oh, it's going to be it's you know it's going to be in the tens of millions, I would imagine, given that. Yeah, you're 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 very close. Yeah, it's a couple of it was I think it was 220 million dollars. Okay. So I said, you know what, Satya Nadella probably gets paid more than 220. I don't know why I get it, but you know it, it was a you know Microsoft rounding error. So you know how impenetrable is that lead? And that, that you don't need to know any more than that. I mean, uh, you know, they, I think they. I tried to do a model of it and with with somebody, and then they've they've now got a phone product, and I spoke to somebody that spent twenty thousand pounds on their phone product, and he couldn't tell me what what it was, and you know, I, and I just thought, I don't really need to know one hundred seventy billion dollars. I don't need to know anymore. I mean, maybe now I don't know what it's valued at now. Probably thirty, forty, a fifty of that. Yeah. Let's stick on this thing because I find this, again, so fascinating. You know, one of the best investments I ever made was Apple. But the reason I bought Apple shares, again, going to this idea about simplicity, I bought an iPod when it first came out. I was a Windows guy at that point. I bought an iPod because I just love music and I wanted to have an iPod, right? And I found a way to hack my laptop so that it would work with an iPod because at the time they were Mac only. And it was clunky to make it work with the thing, but I, you know, I got it working. My laptop was on its last legs. And so I went to get a new laptop. I thought, you know, what? I'm going to buy a Mac laptop. I've never owned a Mac laptop in my life, but it'll make life easier with the iPod. Bought a Mac laptop, didn't know how to use the operating system, but it was very intuitive. You know, within a couple of days, I'm up and running. And I thought, you know what? There's going to be a lot of people out there like me that buy an iPod and end up buying a Mac laptop. So their sales are going to go up. So I'm going to buy shares. So I bought a bunch of Apple shares. They cost me $12 at the time. And that's pre, I don't know how many splits. Simplest analysis in the world, right? And I think when you look at Zoom, this is why these things in this period of easy money are so interesting because there is another side to that simple analysis of yours for Zoom, which is people going, well, I use Zoom all day, every day, and so everyone's using Zoom all day, I'm going to buy the stock. But, of course, it's different, right? There's not a massive load of hardware that Zoom are going to sell. There isn't that side of the business. It's just... As you say, it's a it's a commoditized business, video conferencing. But we've become used to buying things like Zoom because, oh, oh I, I use it. And the same goes for cryptocurrencies and all these things that have sprung up during the, this period of zero rates. How do you think that comes to an end? How do you think that your idea of analysis, simple, fact-based, numbers-based analysis, uh, and sometimes even simpler, comes back into fashion and gets the upper hand again? But I, I forgot to mention, of course, Zoom is a verb, which makes yes, a huge, that's true. It makes a that huge, true. huge difference to the to the multiple. And you know, it, it so happened that I happened to publish this valuation course at that point. I mean, I, I would have done exactly the same analysis three months earlier when Zoom was half the price. Yeah, and I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have drawn any different conclusions. And this is the problem with a with a bubble because it's very difficult to know. At what point things stop going up because you you know it can it can carry on longer than you think is reasonable. I had exactly the same conversation um, about Adgen 
which was um, a stock that I was asked to look at by a client was a $100 billion market cap and it had 1.3 billion euros of sales. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, know you, you have to ask yourself, well, how could this possibly be cheap? You know, I, I, I forget. I think I said if it grew at 40% per annum for 15 years in 2035, it would be fair value. And, but you wouldn't make anything. And there was, right. you know, I said, if you, you know, it would need to do better than that. I've forgotten what. And these things all, well, these things have all stopped now. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I wouldn't rule out having another set of irrational behavior in the tech sector. I mean, yeah. it, it's impossible to rule that out definitively, but I suspect that people have lost so much money that in fact, what we're seeing is the reverse happening. So all of a sudden, Mark Zuckerberg's an idiot. You know, Mark yeah, Zuckerberg, yeah, yeah. who people were accused of being an idiot because he paid a billion dollars for Instagram. Do you remember? Yeah. It, you know, and it did look like a very expensive um, thing, but it, it turned out to be a genius thing. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's clearly a genius, but everybody's now questioning well you know he's spending all this money what's the metaverse is he going to be able to make money out of it and they're forgetting the, they're forgetting that facebook you know old people do, do still use facebook people like me still advertise on facebook and you know face i, I mean I, I haven't looked at the valuation of meta um for quite some time but i i would imagine that if you if you looked at the advertising revenue on Facebook and just gave it a 20 year life, that it would easily be worth the market cap today. So, you know, people are assuming that Mark Zuckerberg will destroy tens of billions of value, which he may, I mean, he may do. I mean, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that he won't. I mean, it is, clearly it's a possibility, but on the realms of you know, what's likely and what's unlikely, I, you know, I imagine that at some point he'll give up wasting $10 billion a year or whatever it is he's spending. So I think um, probably we've, the pendulum has swung to the other direction. The It looks like the other tech stocks are cracking. You know, Microsoft, the, you know, the beloved one, looks like it's, Look like it's failing. Apple's the only one that's holding up better than others, which slightly surprises me because, you know, a thousand dollars for an iPhone in the environment that we're going to go in might seem more of a luxury good than not. It's a luxury good that's owned by people that don't have much money. Yeah. I mean, I know it's, uh, I know it's deemed as an essential. But I suspect that the replacement cycle will be extended. I mean, you know, they, they've got all sorts of, They've got all sorts of opportunities, but you know they're a very big company. Three sixty-five billion revenue in twenty twenty-one. I've forgotten what the revenue was in twenty twenty-two. It's hard to grow meaningfully. Yeah, well, it's hard. You know, every ten percent, thirty-five, forty billion dollars. I mean, you know, that's a lot of that's yeah. a lot of phones. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, people are so. You know, I, I, my, my guess is that the fantasy 
end of a stock market has been more or less deflated and that there is less appetite for the Chamath type, SPAC type, hope value hype than there was over the last two, two to three years. Whether that will make people actually look at the balance sheet or not. I don't, I mean, David Einhorn was on CNBC saying that he didn't think there was the institutional capacity to value businesses. Yeah. If if you are an institution and you're listening to this and you and you you're concerned, do get in touch because this stuff is all all teachable. Right. There's a famous quote from Scott McNeely after the dot com bust that I'm sure you're familiar with, and but there will be people that haven't heard this quote, so I'm going to read it because I think it's just such an important quote. This this was Scott McNeely was the founder and CEO of Sun Microsystems at the time, and in 2002, after the bust of the dot com bubble. Um, you know, he was talking to an investor gathering and he had this to say because his, his company had been trading at 10 times revenues. And he said, at 10 times revenues, to give you a 10-year payback, I have to pay you 100% of my revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero costs of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? And that quote has kind of, I've had it printed out for years. Because that's to me, is, is the perfect illustration of the kind of, sledgehammer of sanity when these periods end, someone can put it into terms like that that makes you look back and go, Christ, what were we thinking? And obviously we've been places way worse than this, right, in the last 10 years. But hang on. So that was 2002. In 2000, uh, actually, I, I, in 2007, I think it was, might be, no, I think it was 2007. I can remember um, a major bank coming to us, asking us to be cornerstone investors in an IPO. And that IPO was done on over 10 times sales. Yeah. So, you know, memories are, our memories are longer because we're older, but memory, market memories are very short. Then, you know, 10 times sales wasn't a barrier five years later. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is when you sit down and you and you hear things like 10 times sales and you see some of the valuations that Kathy Wood, for example, is paying in the you know, ARC funds with this story about the exponential age and how everything's going to do this and, uh, you know, here's where we're going to be in 10 years' time. But even if you want to look 10 years hence, you listen to that quote from McNeil and you realise what has to happen for that to be a worthwhile investment. And... I find it shocking, to be honest, that when you when you read that stuff, you hear about companies trading for twenty five times sales, and you you know I, I have some people I know who sold a business and and they got paid twenty four times sales for it. It's just it's just it's great if you're the seller, but how do we come back from that kind of mentality without some kind of epic crash? Personally. I'm quite nervous about the level of of markets. And I think that, you know, to shake out this excess, you might need 
either a prolonged period of pain right. and discomfort or a much sharper reaction than than you've had. Okay, you know, Meta is down 75%, but, you know, the stock market's not down that much. I mean, you would think it was the end of the world, you know, people saying, oh, we're in a bear market. Oh, but it's, it's bottom now, thank goodness. Yeah, well, actually, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we fell 50%. Wouldn't, I mean, I, I mean, it's not my central case, but is it quite possible, even perhaps quite likely? Well, you know, I could easily paint a scenario in which we had earnings cratering and the, the, the market off 40, 50% from here. Certainly 30% would be easy. Yeah. And, you know, somehow the market, the psychology has, has to be purged. The excesses have to be purged somehow before you can get back to a normal way of working. And I mean, we're we're going to. I think we're going to have a you know a decade of extreme. I mean, it's going to be extremely difficult, extremely tough. Um, you know, I I don't want to be you know a total gloomster. I I was at the FT. You know, the FT do this thing at Kenwood where they have a live event, it's a really fun event. And they asked me to be a panelist and they said, um, we're going to talk about the future, but we're not going to be too gloomy. And so first, so this was the moderator, lovely Claire Barrett, lovely lady. And she said, she did a you know, little introduction. Then she handed over to this wealth manager who happened to be a sponsor. And the wealth manager said, well, you know, all you need is a plan. You know, we can help you. All you need is a plan. And then it turned out to me and I said, well, I think a plan is a very good idea. But if you think a plan is going to preserve your wealth in real terms over the next 10 years, I think you need another plan because a plan won't be enough. And, um, I, I, you know, I think that we're, I, I don't know what the shape of it will be. I don't know what the pattern of it will be. But we haven't had inflation for a very long time. And trying to speak to people who lived through and invested through inflationary times is actually quite rare, so quite unusual. Yeah. So I interviewed Mario Gabelli for Real Vision. I think it was the night that England were playing Denmark in the Euros. And I suspect that Raul was scheduled to do the interview and realised that he would rather watch the football. And no, so no, they he's, not football me, he's not a football fan, so it wasn't that. It wasn't that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, they asked me, and of course, I'm Scottish, so I don't, you know... England-Denmark wasn't, you know, it, it was an interesting game. But speaking we know to Mario who you were rooting for, Steve. We know who you were rooting for. It's okay. Speaking to Mario Gabelli was more exciting and more interesting for me. And I had the football, I did the interview in the living room. I had the football on the telly. So I could, I could watch the game while I was speaking to him. And I said to him, you know, what was it like in the 70s? And I asked him and I asked him and he wouldn't answer. And eventually he, he, we talked about inflation. He said, well, you know, inflation is a bit like toothpaste. Once it's out of the tube, you can't get it back in, which is a quote from somebody else. I've forgotten. I've forgotten who. I, I've talked to Sir John Ripblatt, you know, the guy that ran British land in the UK and took it to be a FTSE 100 company. And he was obviously, he's, he's 84, 85. And he was obviously operating in the 70s. And, you know, when you talk to property people in the 70s, they go pale yeah. because it was it was awful. You know, it was sending people around to collect rent in person, in cash, every every week. 
because you couldn't, you know, you couldn't wait till the end of the month because the value, the money was declining, and and you were, you were, you know, interest rates were so tough. And I, I just don't think people have understood what you know how inflation just erodes the fabric of everything. I mean, I, I kind of kicked myself because I hadn't realized how fortunate we were to live through this benign period of two percent inflation. Right. Everything, everything was very calm. And now, you know, just doing the shopping, just looking at the cost of things. It, and, you know, any business finds it very difficult to put their prices up. You know, even my little business. So my client today, I was doing the same course as I was doing six months ago. Did I say to them, oh, you know, I think I think you should be paying 5% more. Oh, I, no, of course I didn't. Because, they, you know, I think, well, they're, they're a good client and I charge, you know, I'm not that cheap. And, you know, I, I feel it's a difficult thing to ask for a 5% price increase in six months. But that's really what I should be doing. Right. I think lots of people, you know, we're just not accustomed to repricing. We don't live in Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Good. It's funny, um, Bill Fleckerstein and I interviewed Paul Singer I guess it was earlier this year, or maybe late, late, late last year. And you know, he's, we talked about inflation then, and he said, you know, inflation's two things. It's an event and then a mindset. And we've had the event, but we haven't had the mindset yet. But you can, since then, you can feel that mindset starting to develop. And, and I think, you know, to your point, once that mindset takes hold, it changes so many things. Changes margins. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, and, and you know, so we come back to Netflix, right? I mean, I, you know, I look at, my own experience with Netflix and and I'm like every month I keep thinking, oh, I must cancel Netflix. I just don't watch it anymore. And, you know, there's nothing really good on there and they're putting the price up. And, and I know that the next time an email comes to me saying, oh, we're putting the price up. I absolutely, if I haven't canceled it already, I will cancel it at that point because it's reached that point where it's just not worth it for me anymore. And there are all the other streaming services. And so that, that idea of margins getting compressed is, is a very real threat these companies are going to have to face. But it's the same for every company. There isn't a company around that is insulated against it. Because, you know, you're pricing, you know, if you're Apple and you're selling the iPhone at $999, $1,049 is a different psychology. It's a, it's a much harder sale. So, you know, it's interesting that Apple didn't put the price of the iPhone up, the iPhone 14 up in the United States. They put it up in the UK. They put it up, I think, by 15%. Yeah. But even a 15% price increase won't compensate them for the decline in sterling against the dollar. Right. So, you know, it's obviously there's a lot of moving parts when you look at Apple and the iPhone and all the rest of it. But, you know, I don't think there's a company that's immune. I mean, my Microsoft um, subscription just renewed, same price as last year. I can guarantee you that nobody at Microsoft is earning the same amount of money they made a year ago. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great point. Well, let's talk a little bit for individuals who, let's say, find a little bit of religion and start to wonder about the shares they own, the companies, the valuations. Let's talk about some of the things that people can look for, simple tells that will take them, you know, make the first steps down this road to where you're trying to lead people in terms of understanding the balance sheet. Well, I think, you know, there are a couple of things that you can do that are just common sense. And, you know, I mean, 
But the stuff that I teach, I say, look, you know, you can if you you can take it to to the next level, or you or you can say, well, actually, I don't want to get as far as opening the accounts. But even if you don't open the accounts seriously, you can do a certain amount of work, and you should do a, at least a certain amount of work. Interestingly, I did a course for a group of private clients who are all full time invest investors. So one had sold the family business and was investing the money. Another was a, a ex-banker and had his own family offices, those sorts of people. And I said to them, um, they were very tight on what they wanted to pay. You know, these value investors are difficult people to to sell to. And so they um, they were chiseling me on the price. And I said, you know, look, it cost me £1,200 to, to rent the room for the day. And they said, oh, we'll give the, we'll do the room. I said, okay, well, you do the room. You bring a copy of this set of accounts. I said, you don't need to read, print the whole thing, but print the financial statements. Three of them brought the preliminary release. They didn't even know what the accounts were. But even they can do the, the, these tricks. Number one is look at the margins. Now, every fraud that I've studied, and I've studied, I don't know, 75 or 80 different frauds, every fraud had margins that were higher than the peer group. And you can simply avoid frauds by doing a simple check. Look at the margins. Where are they today? Where have they been over time? And where are the peer margins? And do you have an understanding of why the margins are 15% and the peers are 10 or whatever the whatever the numbers are. And that can keep you out of quite a lot of trouble because guess what? Margins mean revert. So if you're buying something that's got high margins relative to history or high margins relative to peers or high margins relative to history and to peers, the odds are that they may mean revert. And so you've got to have an understanding of why they won't. But you don't need to be an accountant to do that. Everybody can, I mean, the margins are quoted in almost any pricing service and you can look at it versus the peer group. The second thing is slightly more complicated because it's working capital ratios. But again, you know, they're, they're generally reported. If you, if you use any sort of share price system, whether it's Centio or Coifin, you know, I, I mean, Coifin, I think is free. I mean, so there's no reason why anybody couldn't use that. And it's got this sort of data. You just look at the working capital ratios and, you know, if the working capital ratios are going in the right direction, then that's fine. If they're not going in the right direction, then you've got to start getting worried. And, you know, companies that have lengthening receivables or lengthening inventory ratios. So these are the number of days sales that they've got in customer receivables, the number of days sales they've got in inventory. If those are rising, it means either the customers don't want to pay you or they don't want to buy your product. And I mean, it's a, you know, I mean, it's not, this is not complicated stuff. Uh, those are very simple. And the third check I, I recommend people do is they look at the amount of cash that's being generated. 
and they look at the amount of cash generated relative to the net income. And they ask themselves, I mean, I do it in a slightly different way and I teach a slightly different way, but you can just do it, look at net income cash from operations and ask yourself, do those earnings, are those earnings translating into real cash flow? And if they're not, move on. <laughs> you know, the thing about the stock market, people don't think about it, is that, you know, there's another idea that comes along. It's like buses. You know, you just wait and another one will be along in a few minutes. And people this sort of urge to pounce on this one idea. And the ideas are everywhere. There's cheap yeah. stocks all the time. Yeah. When I was when I was at the hedge funds, I used to have a pipeline. I mean, I could have had five people working on. I mean, there, there, there's, you know, they wouldn't all have been good, but there's there's opportunity everywhere. And in these stock markets, there's even more opportunity. Although the overall level of the market may not deliver for you, and owning index funds, I don't think will be the way to to preserve your wealth in the 2020s. Individual, there's lots of opportunities in individual stocks. I mean, it is a, a, both on the short and long side, massive opportunity set. I kind of wish I was still at hedge fund, really. And I want to add one thing to what you said about uh, receivables. You know, you, you said you, either people don't want to pay you or they don't want to buy your products. But now we're also reaching the period where they can't pay you. You know, the receivables are extending because these other companies, their, their customers are in trouble. Amazingly enough, I mean, I don't know if you've experienced the same thing. I've experienced, I mean, it started summer of 21. Um, the number of credit card failures I get has gone up and up and up. And, you know, my main course is like £149 a month. So it's a 12-month program. So it's an £1,800 course. So $2,000. You would imagine that somebody is spending $2,000 to teach themselves investing. You would imagine that they would have $170 in a month. You know, they're living at the margin. And even on my Substack, the Substack, the number of failed credit cards is $17.50. Mm. I mean, why is anybody subscribing to my I mean, I've got a free newsletter. You don't need to pay the $17.50. You get most of it for free, $17.50, and they don't have $17.50 in their credit card. I mean, I, I find this frightening. I find I think it's really, really scary. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, the, and the data on, you know, the kind of rainy day funds that people have is really, really shocking. But that, but what you said there about um, opportunities, you know, I, I, again, it's something else that, that I want to dig into because, you know, you're right. And what we've seen in recent years is everybody's been herded into the same stocks, right? Everyone's been herded into the fangs, which just opens up more opportunities elsewhere because people don't want to do the work. They don't want to dig into individual stocks that they don't really know about because it's a lot of work when we could just buy the fangs, right? We can just buy fang and everything goes up. So when you start to screen for interesting stocks, where do you start? Because, I mean, a lot of people have different starting points, but where do you start? Well, I don't really use screens. I know a lot of people do. I mean, when I was at the hedge funds, I would have some screens just um, as kind of a, a, the process I followed was kind of odd, but I would use some screens and some factor screens, some quants tools to try and prioritize my pipeline. So if you've got, you know, 20 stocks that you're thinking, which one of these should I look at first? 
having ones that come up on multiple screens, you know, improves the chances that they are going to deliver. But I wouldn't have used a screen as a way of finding a stock idea. And I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, the only tool that I would really use for that would be, you know, maybe a, an enterprise values of sales tool or, uh, you know, stocks, a, a, you know, a massive discount to their historical price. But, you know, stocks are a massive discount to their historical price today. Well, that's not going to help you, you know, if yeah. when things have been, when things have been valued at crazy, crazy multiples, you know, if AdGen's 10% of its historical peak is still on 10 times sales, you know, I mean, it's not, or eight, eight times sales, it's not necessarily going to be cheap. I don't know what AdGen's, I'm sure it's on more than that, actually. But, um, so I'm not a big believer in using quantitative screens as a, a way of finding stocks. I know people do do it. And if I were to do that, what I would do is I'd use four or five different screens that would enable me to get, you know, a few stocks that came up on more than one. Because I think, you know, the mistake people make is they use a single screen. Yeah. And it's not, it's not a very effective tool. So I prefer to do that. And I prefer to use a combination. If I was going to do that, I use a combination of screens and thematic. Because I think, you know, finding themes that you, you think are going to work is actually a very effective way of filtering, filtering stocks. So I would, you know, I would use a combination of those. Before we close, you, you mentioned the F word a little while ago, and that's something else that you do is seek out frauds and uncover frauds. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, Mark Cahodis, does the same thing. And, and you and he are very, very different in nature and personality, but you you spend time doing the same kinds of things. So as we reach that kind of tide going out point, let's talk about flags for potential frauds, which I suspect we will start to see. Uh, you know, we've seen obviously a big one recently in Nikola, Trevor Milton getting sentenced to prison. When you start to look at companies as possible frauds, which is obviously much different to being overvalued, what do you look for there? Well, I mean, I have to say that I have been astonished in, in the last five years at the number of companies engaged in aggressive earnings management. I mean, it is relative to even 10 years ago. I mean, the it, it, it's really hard to find the company that you can't look and say, hang on a second, they're doing what? I mean, just amazing. I actually think I should write something about the big tech stocks because even the big tech stocks, even Microsoft, which used to be a paragon of virtue yeah. financially, even Microsoft has started to goose its numbers, which um, I, I find you know, it's been goosing its numbers or starting goosing its numbers, perhaps too strong a word, but it's starting to present itself in a more favorable light at the same time as its multiples increasing, which, you know, is quite, is, is quite odd. But as far as fraud is concerned, I mean, the same tools work, right? So high margins, high margins that don't make sense, business models that don't make sense. I, I think the, the, you can you can spot frauds partly from the demeanor of the CEO, the way this. Well, you laugh, but no, it's I, true. I, the, I C, agree. The, the way they the way they behave, you know what? I mean, there there are. I mean, you know, 
why did I get onto Greensill? Well, you know, Lex Greensill was hanging out with some very unsavory people, and it seemed obvious that there was something going on. I mean, and then I opened the accounts, and I, I mean, I was laughing. Honestly, I looked on the accounts and go, <laughs> I mean, I could, I really couldn't understand what Credit Suisse, what due diligence they'd done. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think the, the due diligence department could spell due diligence. Well, whoever looked at Lex Greensill, you know, I mean, it was blindingly, blindingly obvious. And but the problem is that in these days, you cannot say anything because you get a bunch of lawyers down jumping in the back of you. So recently I've had a couple of these things. I had one, I wrote an article for a national newspaper. The national newspaper was too scared to publish. Can you imagine? Really? A national newspaper too scared to publish me saying this company is a bag of well, well I, I I was more polite. Of course you are. And I I I have a letter somewhere from uh, a lawyer who normally acts for oligarchs, but obviously that line of business has dried up somewhat. So he now acts for companies that want to discourage people like me from talking about them. And you know what? When I get a letter in from a lawyer that's paid, you know, I don't know how many thousand pounds an hour to write these crap letters, I don't really need that. I don't, you know, I'm, 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 Got a stress-free life. Right. I'm aiming but, for a stress-free life. You know, I, I you so if you want to discourage me, you can get that bloke to write me a, a letter and I won't I won't talk about you except privately to the shareholders. Right. But you'll it'll also ironically confirm your suspicions for the most part, one would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. The irony is that um the shareholders, <laughs> this particular one, I then said, okay, I um I won't go into the detail of what I didn't do, and but um, I was discouraged from being vocal about the, the company. So what I did was I called all my clients that owned the stock, yeah. and I said, "If I were you, I would really this is this is not a stock you want to own." And I explained I explained why, and. Um, there was one particular shareholder who's not a client of mine. In actual fact, they will be clients of mine because one of their one of one of their team um, is 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 arranging to do a course um, for for his for his group. But um, they wouldn't they wouldn't see me. Wouldn't see yeah. me. Interesting. You know, and I'm like, well, you know, I don't. I don't have any axe to grind here. I just want to come and tell you about a stock you own that I think there's serious problems about. I'd, I've never understood this. I had the same situation um, with a company which was a quoted company which owned a 20% stake in a, in a business which I thought was going to go, was going to fall by a significant amount. I'd done a report. I'd been commissioned to do a report by one of the largest hedge funds in London. I'd done the report. They'd taken it. They'd done what they needed to do. And I thought, well, you know what? I've got all this work. Maybe I could sell the report a second time. I said to them, would you mind if I went and spoke to this quoted company? And they said, oh, no, go, go, go. Because they thought, well, you know, we'll get 20% and we'll be laughing. This 
they would not see me. They wouldn't even let me come and have a cup of coffee with them. I was like, I mean, it's the most bizarre thing. You know, they could easily have looked me up and said, well, this book's actually pretty credible. Why shouldn't we see them? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I would have, you know, given them a, a an inkling of, of what the report was about and told them that they could have it for a modest fee. Yeah. But they instead decided to drop several hundred million. <laughs> Listen, the report would have been a lot cheaper. There's none so blind as those who won't see, I think, is the uh, is the old expression. I think, you know, upward-only markets blind you to the yeah. possibility that you could lose money. And I'm hoping that those blinkers are going to be thrown away and burned and that people will be open to thinking that things can go down as well as up and that they will need to read the balance sheet. I mean... The irony, I think, you know, I'm preparing for a grim 2023 for the business because the, the irony, I think, is that just at the time the institutions really need to invest in their training will be just the point where they go, oh, the training budget's been cut because our AUM's gone down and we had to find the savings from somewhere. We didn't want to make a load of people redundant, so we've we've cut the discretionary spending. And, I, you know, I, I'm quite sure that's what's going to happen. Well, we'll see. Well, hopefully there'll be people listening to this conversation who want to find out more about what you do and, and maybe take up some of the slack if that does indeed happen. So, so Steve, let people know where they can find out more, how they can contact you and find out what you do. Because as I said, I, I think what you do is phenomenal. And I think it's only going to get more important as we go into the next couple of years. Well, thank you. So if you want to, if you want to find me, um, I'm at behindthebalancesheet.com. You can email me at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. You can find me on Twitter at Steve Clapham. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm in a pub in Paddington most evenings. <laughs> well, listen, the next time I'm in Paddington, I will come and find you. That's for sure. Steve, it's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been so long. Let's not leave it this long next time before we have a chat because it's, uh, it's always so interesting getting the chance to, to swap notes with you. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. All right. Take care. Well, one thing's for certain, with the speed at which things are unravelling, the courses that Steve teaches and the subjects upon which he focuses are going to be very much front and centre, I think. So hopefully he'll make good on his promise and come back again soon, Steve, if you're listening. In the meantime, if you head to BehindTheBalanceSheet.com, you'll find out all about Steve and what he does. And I cannot recommend his Substack or his podcast, both conveniently titled Behind the Balance Sheet, highly enough. That's it for me for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.